Matthew 18, 1 to 14, where we'll read these words. At that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven and whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Jesus continues with these words, Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about the one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you will have won your brother over and I've gone too far. (laughs) Thanks, Carl. Did anyone else notice, uh, I don't know if this is important, but Marty is now using Emile's guitar chair. I don't know if that's significant, but uh, it just struck me before. There's a bit of a transition there, a bit of a family thing going on. Well anyway, it's totally irrelevant. But, uh, but interesting to think about nonetheless. Well, it's uh, one of those questions, isn't it, that everybody wants to know, who is the best? Who's the greatest? Uh, who's the best at doing this or that? It's the question that every child or every adult wants to know the answer to. Am I better than so and so at doing this or are they better than me? So much of our world is built on hierarchies. Uh, I play in a trombone quartet, like all the cool people do, and uh, I, don't know, I don't know if you know much about the musical world, but the musical world is, is, uh, is staunchly hierarchical. You know? there's, in a trombone quartet there's four players. There's a bass trombone, the bass trombone, they never count for anything much, but anyway, they, they think they're the greatest. But then there's three other parts, one, two and three. And the way that it works is, if you're the best player, you play number one. If you're the second best player, you play number two. And if you're the worst player in the group, you play number three. I'm number three, uh, which tells you something about how things are working. 
But our world is based, isn't it, so much on hierarchies. And hierarchies aren't bad. Uh, sometimes they're just honest. Uh, you know, I'm the, I am the weakest player in our quartet, so it makes sense that I play that part. Uh, it would be dumb to pretend that hierarchies were useless. But what's problematic is, I guess, when those things become a source of competition and contention like it did for the disciples. The disciples, in the passage that Chris read for us, they come to Jesus and they want to know which of them is the best, which of them is the most important of Jesus' disciples. And they, uh, they want Jesus to come back and to say, well, of course, uh, it's Peter. You know, you, Peter, you are the best. You're the greatest disciple. The others are pretty good as well, but you're the best. Or you, John, you are the greatest. You're the beloved disciple. But Jesus refuses to enter into their party politics and instead gives us a model of a child, a young child, as a model of Christian discipleship. He grabs his child, he puts him in the middle of the crowd and he says, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What's interesting, I think, is that Jesus isn't just talking about who's the greatest, but who's in and who isn't in. Who gets to enter the kingdom of heaven? It's only those who become like little children. It's worth pointing out, I think, uh, kingdom of heaven is a bit of a strange phrase and when we hear that we think, what is going on? Uh, you know, we have this vision of, of people floating around on clouds. That's not what Jesus is talking about. The kingdom of heaven is the place where God rules. And what Jesus is talking about is talking about a world which is going to be recreated and God is going to rule over all the world. The kingdom of heaven is like the kingdom of Australia. It's the place where the Australian government rules. And Jesus is saying, what do you need to do to enter into that kingdom of God, that place where God rules, that, that new world that God is creating, creating where God rules? What does it take? It takes becoming like a little child. What does that actually mean? I reckon that's a kind of a baffling phrase. What does it mean to become like a little child? Because after all, there's lots of things about children, isn't there, that you could pick up on. You could say, oh, well, it's, uh, it's this particular thing or it's that particular characteristic. What's Jesus saying? Well, he's not saying that uh, children are innocent and that we ought to become innocent like children. The Bible never uh, says that children are innocent. We've kind of already seen a pretty stark reminder of that this morning, haven't we, that, uh, that we've been reminded that we're born corrupted and and predisposed to sin. Jesus isn't saying that children are innocent and we need to become innocent, nor is Jesus saying that children are inherently humble and that we need to become more humble or that children are inherently more trusting than adults. Any of us who have been children, which I'm guessing is pretty much all of us, all of us would know that children aren't humble or any more trusting than adults. No, children and adults are just as obnoxious, proud and guilty and untrusting as each other. Instead, Jesus is calling the disciples and those of us uh, who would be one of Jesus' disciples, he's calling us to embrace two other more objective characteristics, if you like, of children and they are their lack of authority and their powerlessness. 
In Jesus' day, as much as in our day, children weren't in charge. Sometimes children are in charge by default today. Uh, Sometimes you see a family where the children are more in charge than the parents. It's always a little unfortunate. But it's not by design. It's adults, isn't it, in our world, not children who are parents. It's adults, not children who are school teachers. It's adults, not children who are CEOs of multinational corporations. It's adults, not children who lead armies and navies and air forces or airs force, I'm not sure. The point is, children aren't in charge. And Jesus says to us, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, the first thing that you need to do is to reckon with the fact that you're not in charge. You're not in charge, God is. In fact, Jesus is God's king and so the very first thing that we need to do is to recognise that and to submit to Jesus. We get so caught up, I think, sometimes playing our power games with everybody else who is listening to me, who ought to be listening to me, who's not listening to me, that we forget that there's one person who none of us really are ever listening to very well at all and that's God. We get caught up thinking, who's the greatest? Am I greater than them? Am I better than them? Are they better than me? And we forget that actually God is greater than all of us and deserves our allegiance. What does it take to enter the kingdom of heaven? It takes realising that God is in charge and we're not. Martin Luther said, if God said I I should eat dung, I would do it. His point was, he needs to come to God with everything in his hands and say to God, this is yours. Whatever you say, I'll do. Because you're in charge, not me. If you cannot accept God's authority, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So that's the first quality of children that Jesus says that we need to uh, recognise and to accept that we're not in charge. The second is powerlessness. Children are in general weaker and less capable than adults. Uh, Very young children can't use the toilet. Uh, Other children can't cook dinner and do the grocery shopping. Other children can't turn on the lights uh, or turn them off because the light switch is too high. Children can't drive cars because they can't reach the pedals. Although my brother told me the other day that some child was pulled over in the Gold Coast or something, a seven-year-old driving their father home from the pub or something ridiculous. Anyway, but but in general the principle still stands that children can't do many things that adults can do. They are less capable, less able than adults. Children are less capable than adults and adults are less capable than God. We don't need to become powerless. We already are powerless. What we need to do is to recognise that we're powerless and to flee to Jesus. I have a niece uh, who, I don't know if she still says it, but she always used to say it, I can do it myself. Uh, you know, and my mum, my mum would be looking after her and, uh, and my niece would say, I can do it myself. And my mum would say, um, no, actually you can't do it yourself. You're not actually able to do it. Uh, I have to do it for you. She thought that she could always do it herself, but she wasn't actually able to. And I think... All of us really are like that in our lives, aren't we? We say to God, I can do it myself. And the truth is that we can't. 
We like to think that we can. Is my relationship with God broken? I can fix it. Have I sinned and done the wrong thing? I can make up for it. Are there attitudes and and behaviours in my life that are destroying my life and my relationship with other people? I can change. Does the world need to be fixed? I can do it. It's interesting really, isn't it, that the message that we hear every day in our schools and every day on the radio and every day uh, on our TVs and in every film that we see, the message that we hear is, you can do it. And I can't think of a message more calculated to destroy people than that. Because if you keep telling people, you can do it, if you just set your mind to it, you can do it, and then you can't, it's no wonder people are so horribly depressed if the message is, you can do it, and we can't. We can't do anything on our own apart from God. We can't even breathe. Still less can we mend our relationship with God. But the good news of the Gospel is that Jesus can do it. And how do we receive it? We receive it by coming to God, coming to Jesus, realising our powerlessness and saying, Father, I can't mend this. I can't mend our relationship, but you can do it through Jesus Christ. We need to humble ourselves Jesus says we need to humble ourselves by recognising our, that we're not in charge and recognising that we're not sufficiently powerful to make things right. And we don't just do that once. It's not as though there's one moment in our life where we go, Jesus, you're in charge and I need your help and then go on the rest of our lives living as though we're in charge and we don't need God's help. No, every moment of every day we need to be saying, Jesus, you're in charge and I need your help. Who is the greatest? Is it people like Whitfield and Wesley through whom God converted whole nations? Is it people like William Wilberforce who ended slavery? Who are the greatest Christians? Jesus says it's the people who humble themselves, submit to Jesus' authority and receive Jesus' power. Listen to these words from Psalm 145. His pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of a man. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. Who's the greatest? Not the strong, not the people who get things done, but the people who trust in Jesus and submit to his authority. Well, those two qualities that Jesus uh, picks up on about children are played out in the rest of the passage. So far, Jesus has really been talking about our relationship with God uh, and how humility uh, plays into that. But then he goes on to talk about how that plays into the rest of our lives and into the rest of our relationships uh, in general. And the, the kind of the negative example, if you like, is, is given in verses 6 to 9 where Jesus addresses the people who don't make it into the kingdom of heaven. So the people who do make it in are those who become like little children. But in 6 to 7 he says, But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. 
Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. When Jesus says, uh, if anyone causes one of these little ones to sin, he's talking about, not just talking about children, he's talking about disciples. Uh, little ones becomes a kind of a term in the, in the Gospel of Matthew to refer to people who have become like children. They are Jesus' little ones. They are Jesus' disciples. And so Jesus is saying that people who submit to him, who humble themselves, they won't be people who lead other Christians, other disciples into sin. In fact, he says, people who do that will be better off being drowned in the depths of the ocean. One uh, person wrote, if a quick drowning is preferable, the alternative must be terrible. It's an interesting point, isn't it? Just think about that uh, for a moment. If you're better off being drowned with a heavy stone in the depths of the ocean, how bad must the alternative be for people who lead others into sin? Here's the question. Are you busy leading people away from the good news of forgiveness in Jesus and freedom from slavery to sin? If the answer is yes, then Jesus' hard word is you're better off being drowned in a very, very deep ocean. That's a pretty confronting statement, uh, really. But Jesus wants us to know that the kind of humility that counts isn't just isn't the kind of humility which says, I follow Jesus and then goes off and leads other people into sin. I, uh, I met a minister once who, uh, who told me about his experience in beginning uh, work at a particular church and he was shocked because after a while of being there he realised that what was happening on the weekends is that uh, the elders were getting together and they were getting totally smashed. They were taking people with them, they were just going off and having a great time, getting plastered. And this guy was saying, what's going on? These guys are supposed to be the elders in the church and they're setting a tone in the church of sin and indifference to sin. What's going on? What happens when new Christians come into the church and they see that example? They abandon following Jesus and give their lives to alcohol. What's God's message to the elders in that church? They would be better off being drowned in the middle of a very deep ocean with a very heavy stone tied around their neck. That's a pretty confronting way of saying this isn't a game. People who have truly humbled themselves before God and submit to Jesus' authority will be people who are careful not to lead other people into sin. They'll also be people who deal with sin ruthlessly in their own lives. Look at verses 8 to 9. Jesus says, If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed and crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Sin is so serious that it requires serious attention and people who have humbled themselves under the authority of Jesus will be serious and ruthless in dealing with sin. Please don't go home and pluck out your eye and cut off your hand. That's not what Jesus means. 
scissors using a metaphor like he does all the time. It's like saying, I'd rather chop off my own arm than go to a Justin Bieber concert with Adam. Uh, or, or like saying, I'd rather a poke in the eye with a blunt stick than live in Tasmania or something like that. It makes the point, doesn't it? I mean, you wouldn't genuinely prefer those things but it makes the point. And Jesus' language is making the point as well. Sin requires severe treatment, severe treatment because playing with sin never ends well. You're much better off, Jesus says, dealing with sin severely and seriously and ruthlessly than playing with it and spending eternity apart from the love of God. What might, sin, what might dealing with sin ruthlessly look like? Uh, I was reading a book the other day about outreach and the arts. It was a really interesting book by Con Campbell. And in that book, uh, Con Campbell tells the story of a friend of his who was a professional jazz musician. He's a professional jazz guitarist. Uh, and he became a Christian. And he realised that actually uh, playing jazz guitar was a, an idol for him. He was serving jazz guitar with his whole heart, his whole life. Uh, he was devoted to it uh, and playing guitar for him as well was bound up with lots of other things like alcohol abuse and drug abuse. And in the end he decided that the only way to deal with this was to cut that part out of his life. It was his livelihood. It was his, uh, up until that point, it was his whole reason for living. But he decided that he had to give up uh, playing guitar because God was more important to him than his music. Interestingly, uh, he tells the story of another friend who had exactly the same problem. He was a drummer and he gave up drums but he found that he could take up guitar and still serve God but he couldn't play drums. But both of those people realised that dealing with sin and idolatry and, uh, and rebellion against God, dealing with those things was important. Dealing with them ruthlessly and seriously was important because it was more important to love God and to serve God than to play with sin. Jesus says people who've humbled themselves to his authority will be, will be people who deal with sin ruthless, ruthlessly. They won't be complacent and they won't lead others astray. He's not saying you need to be perfect but he is saying that our stance towards sin should be serious and unyielding. So Jesus uh, shows how, how humility to his authority works out in practice. Then he goes on to talk about humility uh, to God also works out in the way that we treat other Christians. In verse 10 he says, don't look down on one of these little ones. Why shouldn't uh, we look down on, on one of Jesus' disciples, on these other Christians? Jesus gives a kind of a, a very cryptic answer. He says, I tell you that, uh, that their angels in heaven always see the face of my father. That's not suggesting, it sounds kind of like it's suggesting that every Christian has a sort of a guardian angel that's watching over them. But that's not what's going on. It's just saying that uh, the angels as a whole, that is the angels who are God's ministering servants, sent to look after God's people. The angels as a whole stand before God. Why are angels standing in the presence of God a reason not to look down on other Christians? 
That's a bit of a puzzle. But Jesus goes on to explain in the next verses. He says, what do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? If he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. When a sinner repents, Jesus says, God rejoices. And the connection with the angels, which is maybe still a little bit foggy, is, uh, is made clear when you look at the same kind of account in, in Luke's Gospel where Jesus says, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. It's the angels and God in heaven who rejoice over sinners and disciples who repent. When a sinner repents, God rejoices. When a sinner repents, God's angels rejoice as well. And here's the lesson for us. When others repent and flee to Jesus, we shouldn't look down on them. We shouldn't look down on them because of their past sins or their past lostness, but we should receive them with rejoicing and with great joy. Jesus says the same thing in verse 5, whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes not just a little child but one of these little ones Jesus' disciples. The key idea is this. A person who's humbled themselves before God and who has truly experienced the grace of God will not be a person who looks down on the lost person who returns. People who've experienced the grace of God won't look down on others who've experienced the grace of God. You see, after that, serious and sobering warning about sin, it'd be easy, I reckon, for people to get carried away. Jesus wants us to tread a fine line. We can't ignore sin. We need to deal with it ruthlessly. But we also need to receive back people who've repented. We need to receive back people who've turned away from their past sins. And nothing shows more clearly, I think, that a person hasn't really grasped the gospel than that they look down on other Christians who've turned away from their sin. Nothing more clearly shows that a person hasn't humbled themselves before the grace of God than if they look down on other people who've humbled themselves before the grace of God. And on the flip side, nothing is more unique to the true people of God than that they rejoice when people repent. And when they humble themselves and turn away from their sin and flee to Jesus. There's nothing more disturbing, I think, than a church that's unable to forgive and receive people back. It's a great test, isn't it? It's a great test for us, for you, to see whether we've really grasped the gospel Do you rejoice over sinners who repent? Or do you look down on them, never able to move on from their past? You expect God to forget your past and to hurl it into the depths of the sea. But can you forget the past of other people who've repented and turned away from sin and fled to Jesus? 
Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? A better question might be, who enters the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus' answer is the person who humbles themselves, the person who realises that they're not in charge but that Jesus is. It's the person who humbles themselves and realises that they're powerless to save but that God is mighty to save. It's the person who comes to Jesus with empty hands. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me Saviour or I die. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you're in charge and we're not. Because to be honest, we're not very clever and we always make mistakes and we always get it wrong. And so thank you, Lord, that you're in charge and you always know what's right and you always know what's good. Lord, help us to accept that and to bow before Jesus, your King, and to submit to his authority. Lord, help us to give up our own authority and our own often wayward ideas about what's good and right and proper and help us to receive your words about your will. Lord, thank you that you're powerful and mighty because, Lord, we're not powerful and we're very weak. Lord, so much of our lives is outside our control. We set our hearts to do something and it doesn't work out. We try to achieve things and it doesn't work. Lord, please help us not to stop trying but to realise that the power doesn't reside in us but in you and in your grace and in your love and your compassion. Lord, help us to realise that we're not powerful and to see that Jesus is mighty to save. Lord, we pray that none of us would fail to see that and to be, and be so committed to our own lives and our own interests and our own abilities and our own achievements to be so committed to those things, Lord, that we're unable to see the reality and to flee to you. Lord, do this, we pray, not for our own sake, but for Jesus' sake. Amen.